We read the scripture as to not forget where we've come from and where we are going. That is towards Jesus. Take a moment to speak it out loud over your life, your family, and our world. Now let's read together. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. Now, we love reading scripture aloud together. I believe God's word has power to transform our lives, and so y'all read it so well. So each week when we get to this moment, we don't want you just to sit back. We want to invite you to read aloud with us. Hey, if you have a copy of scripture, join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are getting close to the end of this summer study, and uh, if you got your phones, you can click over there or go to faithchurchks.org and uh, click on sermon notes, and you can follow along. There's going to be a lot of scripture, and we're going to have some things that towards the end that we're going to read together. Just got a question I want us to consider today. Uh, When was the first time you encountered and had to interact with the reality of death? Maybe for you as as a kid when uh, your goldfish or pet bunny no longer was with you. Maybe it was the loss of a loved one or someone that you hold dear that is no longer walking this earth. When it comes to death, when it comes to what happens after we die, when it comes to heaven, hell, eternity, we all have questions. We all have things that we wonder about, things that maybe we have believed in, and maybe some of the things that we have believed have been more culturally passed down to us rather than scripturally accurate. And we want to go to the truth of scripture to discover what hope, what life, what joy, what truth, what assurance we have through Jesus Christ. So we're going to walk through that a little bit. In fact, the Apostle Paul is closing uh, down of his letter to the Corinthians here in 1 Corinthians. And starting in chapter 15, he begins to walk us through some of these realities. And I think that one thing that we would all agree, and it might sound a little odd to even say, but we know that death kind of comes for us all at some point. And I think it's important that especially in this day and season and time that we do not become jaded with the reality of death. I don't care how tired you are of the ticker count as we talk about COVID and those who have died. I want to encourage us as followers of Jesus to not become jaded and dismissal as it relates to the reality of life and death. 
the Apostle Paul would want us to consider some different things as well. I believe that as for the follower of Jesus, death is not hopeless, but rather full of hope. In fact, I believe Christianity, unlike any other belief system around today, offers hopeful and sure answers to this very reality. That's a good place to say amen. The resur- Here's the big idea today. Here's what I think Paul wants us to understand. Here's what I want to hope that you understand. And for those of you that are like, Pastor, just get to the bottom line. I don't need you to circle the plane. I just need you to land it right here. Let me give you the bottom line. The one thing I want you all to know today. Here it is. Are you ready? The resurrection of Christ is real. And it brings us real hope today for a future reality of resurrection life tomorrow. It, it is the most hopeful we have found. In fact, in his book, The Problem of Jesus, author Mark Clark says it like this. The Christian life is both historic facts and life-changing personal application. Or to, to maybe put it another way, Christianity is not only true, it is the most helpful option in the marketplace of ideas. And that's all because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Buddhism and Hinduism, for example, are otherworldly. They are about, quote-unquote, states of consciousness and, quote-unquote, enlightenment, metaphysical, abstract, spiritual teachings. Judaism and Islam center around the study and practice of law, the Torah, the Mishnah, and the Quran, respectively. These religions are about living according to a particular interpretation of authoritative text and teachings, and while Christianity has aspects of otherworldly and practice of law, ultimately it comes down to a single event, a verifiable moment in history. Christianity could not survive if it was only about Jesus' teachings, as good as those are. Even his death, as heroic as that was, could not sustain the faith by itself. It is a good example of sacrifice, but it becomes a sad and tragic story if you take out the resurrection. Your faith and my faith, let let me just say it this way, my faith in Jesus, my faith that I professed when I got into the waters of baptism as a young child, as like many of you have done and continue to hold true, Our faith is centered and rooted in an established historical event known as the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The other things are very, very important. They have implications for us. The truth of God's word reveals the the myriad and multi-layered story of God's people and his salvation and redemption and atonement and eternity. And it unfolds all of this for us, but it is really the resurrection. That if this one event doesn't happen, as we'll read here in a moment, the Apostle Paul would say, your faith and my faith is a waste of time. But I've got good news. Christ raised from the dead. He is alive forevermore. The reality of Christ's resurrection is really where I want us to start. And I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 4. You all read it out loud. Those of you who weren't heathen, rebellious people and decided to not participate read it. 
out loud anyways. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 4, look, look, look at what Scripture says. It says that he, he's talking of Jesus, was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he then appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living. That's key to understand that he says that. Because he's writing in this century, this century where people who wanted to refute, he didn't really rise from the dead. There are over 500 people who would stand up and say, you can take my life, but I'm telling you right now, I saw him with my eyes. That's a big deal. That's eyewitness testimony. That holds up in the court of law even to this day. 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That's Christianese for they died. <laughs> then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me. Paul writes and says, listen, the reality is he rose from the dead. In fact, there's a historical account, um, even historical writers that are viewed as accurate and trustworthy historians to this day wrote about Jesus, his life, his death, his disciples, his miracles, and they are viewed as historically accurate and trustworthy documentation. And these are people who wrote writings not included in scripture these are outside of our own treasured scriptures and of course paul throws it in there and he says uh, and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures what's he talking about he's talking about um the prophecy that foretold the prophecies rather that foretold of jesus's death and resurrection things like Psalms 2, verse 7, Psalm 16, verse 10, Psalm 61, verse 7, Psalm 68, verse 18, Psalms 102, verse 25 through 27, Psalms 10, verses 1, Isaiah 25 and verse 8, Isaiah 26 and verse 19, Isaiah 53, 10 and 12, Daniel 12, 2, Hosea 6, 2, and Hosea 13, 14. Can I get 500? Over here, give me one, give me one, give me two. Right, like, according to the scriptures, which we have many, foretelling, Eight ball, corner pocket, I'm closing my eyes behind my back, shot called, it goes in and he wins. He did it. This is the resurrection that we don't believe just is hearsay passed down, but there is historical data that goes along with it. Think of it just for a minute, the medical evidence alone and the historical reality that it was the Romans who crucified Jesus, which helps us know that he was dead dead. Like, he wasn't just, like, faking death. He was dead dead. Why? Because Romans were good at kill-killing you. Like, died dead. Right? Like, no guessing. Given that he was and how good uh, the Romans were at killing, we should reject the claim that many make that he just swooned in and out of consciousness and then woke up later. That's not how the Romans rolled. They did it different. The evidence of the missing body, think about this. A body would have been easy to find in that day, and Rome guaranteed wanted to do it. In fact, they, the religious leaders paid the Roman guards who were standing outside Jesus' tomb, paid them money to say they fell asleep. Now, can I just for a minute pontificate on how pointless that lie would have been? Think about it. I fell asleep. 
Then these disciples silently came by while I was asleep, rolled this massive stone away, stole a body all in silence, in concert, and working together. And then I woke up and it happened and it was gone. Y'all, my kids try to creep up the stairs at 2 a.m. and my wife is like, what's happening? <laughs> right? Like, they didn't have Ambien back then. These Roman soldiers no doubt would have woken up to like a stone rolling. No, stand here. No, you go stand there. No, I said lift, lift. Are we going on three or are we going on two? What is it or what are we doing? Like, just think for a minute about the fallacy of that one lie, but yet that's what they were going with. And nobody doubted it. Nobody second thought it. And if Rome really wanted to prove that the body was stolen, Rome would have proven that the body was stolen but the body wasn't stolen. It was resurrected. Then you have the evidence of the appearance. Hundreds of people claim to have seen the resurrected Christ after his death, and these were people who were living, giving eyewitness testimony, and willing to stake their lives on their statement and belief that he is alive. And many are staking their life to this day on that same fact. Brothers and sisters in Kabul willing to still gather in their closet silently, lift their hands in worship, pray aloud and recite scriptures. But heaven forbid we get out of bed week after week and get a cup of coffee. And if we don't have coffee before we go to church, we can't go to church. And if we can't get the kids out and we can't do this and we can't do that. And y'all, I'm just shaken to the core this week. Sometimes I'm unwilling to kill my own comforts to follow Jesus. But yet I still believe that he died and was buried and rose again. We've got to pray, church. And all of these eyewitnesses were willing to stand and testify to that fact too. And it ought to gut check us a little bit. Then, of course, not only was there historical evidence, I believe that the resurrection, the reality of it, has personal implications for you and me. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 12. It says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of other dead? There is no if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. In other words, if it's impossible for God to do it again, then it was impossible for him to do it the first time. But we have a God who specializes in doing impossible things, even improbable things. And if Christ has not been raised, are preaching useless? And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have tested about God that he was raised from the dead. But if he did not raise him, in fact, the dead are not going to be raised either. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people so to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised. That's good news. From the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
I'm going to talk more probably next week a little bit about this idea of first fruits, but I just want you to realize that God gave his son first so that worldwide sons and daughters could be a part of God's family. Love gives and Jesus gave, or God gave first. He gave first. And Jesus was a first fruits of sorts, the first to be raised revealing that he was a seed that was buried in the ground and came back up later because that which is put in the ground comes back up from the ground in life. And the long-term process, there is a coming resurrection that has implications for you and me. And Paul is wanting you to understand, listen, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, you're wasting your time every single Sunday. This is all pointless. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, I am an absolute liar and deserve to be called such. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, you are still stuck in your sin and the waters of baptism have no metaphorical power. They don't state of the power of Christ that has accomplished something in your life and my life. If he didn't raise from the dead. But he is alive. And he was the first of what will one day be many resurrections. He's alive and it has personal implications for us all. Not, not only is, is, is the reality of Christ's resurrection clearly stated in the, in the context of 1 Corinthians 15, but, but Paul takes it a step further to help us understand the reality of Christ's return. Let, let's talk a little bit about the reality of Christ's return because this is also where we see our Christian hope come to the surface and clearer than ever before. It's the reality that one day... Jesus is coming again. Death will be vanquished. Sin will be gone. And the enemies of God will be punished for eternity. And that's some really good news. Because I don't like to lose. That's not the only reason why it's good. But that's just a little. I just thought I'd throw that in there. I ain't liking losing why we're not talking about the Cardinals baseball standings right now. Praise the Lord. Christ will return one day. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. Look, look, look through this. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 51. And for those of you that are praying, you need to start praying for the Kansas City Chiefs. They need to look a little better than they looked the last two weeks, too. We need to pray. You pray, church. Ain't nobody like to lose around here. 1 Corinthians 15. Look, look at it starting in verse 51. Come on, that's good to laugh in church, isn't it? It's good to laugh in church. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 51. Listen, Paul says, I want to tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Sleep. Remember, that's Christian lingo for you died. There is coming a time when Jesus returns. And when he returns, there will still be humanity walking on the earth. Maybe it'll be you. Maybe it'll be three generations from you. We don't know. God's been using the same marketing campaign from the beginning of time. I'm coming back soon. Soon. When are we leaving? Soon. Great. Wonderful. Soon. Okay, it's happening soon. When's soon? It's soon. Sooner than later. That's when it's happening. Soon. But it's a bit of a mystery. We will not all sleep 
but we will all be changed. What is he saying? In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, in a very moment, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Don't get caught up. Here's all he's trying to let you understand. The, the trumpet sounding is biblical language metaphor for something is going to be announced and you're not going to be able to miss it. It's not going to be secret. It's not going to be subtle. It's not going to be like, I wonder what happens. No, no, you're going to be like, oh, dang, there he is. That's Jesus. Like, it's going to be obvious. You're going to know it. And you ain't going to be wondering what happened. You're going to know what just happened. He's going to show up in a moment. It's going to happen for the trump will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must be clothed itself with imperishable. Don't get lost, but follow as close as you can. And mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal clothed with immortality. Almost said the wrong word there. Immortality. Then... <laughs> Rewind. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? This is the Christian hope of resurrection. It hinges on the moment that we believe and profess and hold to as the return of Christ. What's he saying? When Christ returns, those who are dead will be raised to life. Their bodies reunited with their souls and spirits. And eternity and God's heavenly new reign and new earth all begin it's a wonderful wonderful moment new bodies resurrected similar to christ await us at that moment of christ's return when we experience our resurrection of our bodies well, what's that body going to be like i don't know the bible isn't explicitly clear but it does hint at a few things we know that jesus put on, uh, he had a heavenly body when he returned, resurrected, came back. We know he ate food. We know he, he, he was visible and recognizable. We know he still had scars in his hands. And we know that he could be here one minute and the next minute, he was gone. We know that he could walk and doors didn't matter because he could walk through walls. Does that mean we're going to get that same thing? I don't know. But the Bible refers to all of it as, as a bit of a mystery. It's a heavenly body and it's good. We, we know that here, Paul is trying to help us to understand that like you are now mortal, but then your new resurrected reality will be immortal. You are corrupted right now in your flesh and body by sin and death and fear and the evil of our fallen world. But there will be a day when that resurrection happens and sin is defeated and death overcome and death no longer has a sting in your life and my life. Forever our bodies will now be changed to incorruptible without corrosion, decay, renewed. Y'all, this is good news. This is the hope that we have in the return of Christ, which brings about our resurrection. And so some of you who are intellectually and maybe even skeptically inclined are beginning to think, wait a second, wait a second. Are you saying that our bodies are in the ground and then, then our bodies and everything comes together? Well, what, what's happening right now? I mean, like Grand Grand, she's there, but I thought she was also there. Like, where, 
Where, oh, where did Grand Grand go? Oh, where, oh, where could she be? Great question. I'm thankful for the word that gives us a little bit of insight. This is what theologians often refer to as what's known as intermediate state. Uh, Baker's Evangelical Dictionary defines it like this. Christianity postulates that there will be a resurrection of the body at the end of the age when Jesus returns. Because many people physically die before that time, in what state of being do they exist until that time? Like, what's happening right now? The state of being is called an intermediate state because it stands between our state of being while alive on earth and our final state of being that will include a resurrection body. Scripture doesn't tell us what the interim body is like, but it does tell us that a consciousness existence morally continuous with this life awaits us. Often referred to in Scripture as paradise, Abraham's bosom for the righteous, torment for those who reject God's offer of mercy. Hebrews 12 tells us that we are surrounded right now by a great cloud of witnesses, saints in the faith who have gone before us, who are cheering us on. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 tells us that to be away from the body is to be present with God where he is right now. It's good to be with God. In fact, Paul would write in first, uh, in first, no, in Philippians chapter one, verse 23, he says, it is better to be with God than in my body on the earth. There is something good about those moments. And, and what we know is that after Christ returns, that is when there is a re-embodied resurrection of all of the dead to face either judgment or reward. Paul does not attempt to describe what the disembodied soul is like. If only he would have, it would have made my job a ton easier. But he doesn't. Paul does not attempt to describe this and what our souls might be like. He only knows it is a temporary state because at the resurrection of the dead, when Christ returns, we will be made complete again like Christ in his resurrected body. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. John 5.24-30, Jesus talks about this very thing. And he says that the righteous will not be judged for sin, but rather cross over that death and that Judgment and instead stewardship is weighed and rewarded. There is unrighteous who are judged and condemned to death based on their rejection of Christ while they live their life on this earth. Here's what we know. It's that when you take your final breaths on this earth, eternity has already been sealed for you. Which means that the resurrection of Christ, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his willingness to give you mercy and justice and, and his willingness to bring forgiveness and atonement and to be your sacrifice, to take your place. That the reality of who Jesus is and the work that he did, it demands a response from you. 
And we are either receiving his mercy and grace, known as salvation, or we are rejecting it. Option A, option B, no C or D. A or B. It demands a response. And while there's breath in your lungs, friends, I want to proclaim the gospel to you so that you can make a choice. So that you can say, I want to receive that mercy and respond to the call of the Spirit, or you can reject it. And make no mistake, as long as there's breath in your lungs, I believe that the Spirit is giving you opportunity to woo you again. So you're not watching this by mistake, and you're not sitting in a seat this morning by mistake. What is our response to this resurrection? What what should it be? What should it look like? What does that mean? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. says this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. That's good news. Not of condemnation, but, but of something good. Something too good to be true. Something too good for you to be able to earn and grab a hold of on your own. Something known as the gospel that I preach to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. There's a lot of posturing in our world today, friends. Might I encourage you? Nay, employ you. Take a stand on the gospel of who Jesus is. You don't need to take a stand on too many other things right now. There are other things that are super important. But if we don't get this right, Lord, help me say this right. If you don't get it right enough to communicate it to someone else, if you're just a clangy symbol, do I need to bring it back up? Don't make the gospel confusing because of. Take a stand in the right place. Take a stand in the right place. It's Jesus. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. He's the center, He's the answer that you need. He's the one that's going to bring change and rearrange your life. He's the hope that you need. All of the other things will begin to shift and to change and to fall into place. When you get him right in the center, everything else flows in the proper direction from there. The other things are so important. Don't get me wrong. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm just saying the most important is how you respond to the resurrection of Christ in your life. On this gospel, which you take your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. That's a progressive tense. It's not just an immediate moment. It's a recognizing that that salvation is both now and not yet. It is now that you get justified in the court of heaven because of Jesus, but not yet because you are still in the process of being saved, sanctified, made into the image and the likeness of Christ. And then one day when you die and the resurrection happens, then death and sin no longer will be present among us. But it's a process. We're in process. And if you hold 
firmly to the word in which I preach. In other words, don't let it go. Treasure it above everything else that you've got in your life. Give your allegiance to the cross of Jesus and the resurrected, him, resurrected Lord. Give him your full allegiance. Give him your whole hope. Give him your everything. Hold on to him. Let everything else go and hold on to him. Hold on, folks. The ride's going to get bumpy. You better buckle it down, strap in, and grab the bar. Hold on to the hope that is found in the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, if you hold on firmly to the word I preach to you, if you don't hold on, if you believe a gospel other than what Paul preached, if you believe a gospel other than what Jesus represented, if you believe a gospel other than, what gospel are you talking about, Pastor? I'm talking about the gospel that says that Jesus Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel I'm talking about. The essence of who Jesus is and what he did, that you can't earn it, you don't deserve it, but the grace of God wants to show up and transform your life if you'll receive it. And choose to follow him. I have decided. To follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. It's the gospel that he wants us to hold on to. I, I want to challenge you. Those of you that are. Uh, been studying scripture for a little bit. Go, go do a search. On the phrase hold on. Hold firm. Stand firm. Just, just in the epistles alone, in, in the letters to the church, just read that, how the apostle Paul talks about this perseverance, this pushing on, this holding on, this grabbing firm with it. And Paul says, I want you to know that there is a gospel that I preached. It wasn't just with words, but it was demonstrated with power. It wasn't just his words, but how he lived his life among them. Friends, you are preaching a gospel. I hope it's the right one. He, he's not talking about the gospel that he preached was not a pluralistic gospel. I'm going to take a little of this God, a little of that God, a little of this thing, a little bit of that thing, sprinkle it into Americana, and we're going to call it salvation. It's one Lord, one Savior, one God, one worthy of your full allegiance. It's not pluralistic. He's not talking about believing in reincarnation. That depending on how good you do today will determine your state in the next life. It's not what he's talking about. It's not reincarnation. That's a false gospel. It's not the truth of what Jesus proclaimed. It's not what has crept into much of the uh, American church. What is being defined and called as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Not the gospel of Jesus. Sounds like it. But it's not. Pastor, what does that mean? Well, essentially it means this, using God to get what you want and to make you happy. Life is sorry right now. Life stinks. I better go to church. Maybe that'll make it better. As if Jesus is just your new therapist. I believe in therapy. I think it's great. I think we need it. But you also need Jesus. And you need the truth of what God's word says. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. This is when we think that we know what we need and then demand that God give us what I need. Friends, I, I just want to let you in on a little secret. 
You may have not figured it out yet. I know your husband is amazing and wonderful, but you're not God and neither are they. God is God. He is sovereign among men. He is Lord of all. He ain't your genie in a bottle. Rub a couple verses the right way and see what comes out. Nope, didn't work that way. Are there promises in God's word? Absolutely. That's what we hold fast to. Are there prayers that we ought to be praying? Absolutely, we ought to be using our faith in prayer. But it's not this moralistic, therapeutic deism that is often perpetuated. Moralistic, it means that if you're good, you're just be good. Be more good than you are bad, and maybe the scales will balance out in your favor. And if you don't get it there, maybe some of your friends down on the earth can pray you into a better existence. Nope. Doesn't work that way. You're never going to be, because it's not your good versus your bad, friends. It's your good and your bad against the righteousness of Jesus. And until you invite Jesus to be your Lord and allow him and the work of the cross and the miracle of grace to be applied and you get hidden in Christ and he gets on your scale and you allow him to be your substitutionary atonement where he takes your place in the punishment in the scales of heaven, then it's his righteousness against his salvation. That's good news for you and me. It's not how good can you be. It's not if I do just good enough. It's not can I change myself. It's not self-help. It's not if I have enough self-control, I can just get there, I can do better. No, you are powerless to change yourself. It is only the Spirit of God that can break the yoke of bondage and sin on your life and my life. There is no other name under heaven by which you can have a hope of being saved. It's just Jesus. not your words it's his word it's Jesus friends it's Jesus it's not moralistic therapeutic feel good I just I just need to feel good I'm feeling bad I need to go to church so I can feel good our hope here is that it's always a life-giving experience for you anything that doesn't end in the hope of Jesus isn't actually the gospel Anything that doesn't end in the truth of who Jesus is and what he can do for you isn't, isn't really there. And there ought to be something in God's word that unsettles us just enough. It ought to unsettle us a little bit. Ought to be stepping on your toes just a tad. I'm not trying to beat you down, whip you down, and make you feel like you're, you're, you can play handball with the curb. That's not what I'm trying to do. That's intelligent humor. Some of you will be like, what's handball? What's a curb? I'm not sure anymore. You'll get it later. I believe Christ comes in and he gives us new life and hope of salvation and it's wonderful. It's not some phony thing. Listen, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me really, really clear. Especially all of my um, friends who kind of grew up in word of faith, charismatic. Hear me, the resurrection does not save you from death. This plane will not go down because I'm on it, and I'm on assignment. I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Resurrection doesn't guarantee that you will be saved from death. The resurrection of Jesus does make you safe in your death. 
And that's your hope that you hold to. That's the hope that you hold to. Makes you safe. Knowing that what happens on the other side, knowing that what happens when he returns, there is a security, an assurance of that salvation. Friends, it's time to allow the gospel to fully transform us. As we get ready to come to the Lord's table, we're going to do something together. Here at Faith Church, our, what we hold to, what we profess as our beliefs, as the truth of what we believe is found in an iteration of what's called the Nicene Creed. And as we come to the Lord's table, I, I want us to say aloud this statement of our belief. This statement that we hold to, that we're holding fast to of who God is, who his son Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, and what our hope of resurrection looks like. This is what we want to hold on to. This is what we want to profess. And, and every time we eat bread and drink juice, you know what we're doing? We're giving testimony of our faith of the gospel that we believe. That it's by grace that we're saved through faith, not of our works, but Christ's work. So that we don't get to boast, but we get to celebrate and receive this free gift. This is what we do. This is what we do. And before we do that, I just want you to, to say, say this. If, if you're here and you're just kind of exploring following Jesus, you're not sure what it looks like for you, you're not sure if you want to, you're just not sure. You're just checking it all out. I don't want you to feel pressure today to say something like you believe it if you don't believe it. It's all right. We're glad you're here and exploring and looking for answers. You might not be ready to take communion. That's okay. That's, this is a safe place for you to be, for you to be watching from. But I want us to, to say aloud these words and allow them to have this sense of, God, let me hold on to this. In fact, my challenge this week to you is that every day, and it's listed on our central hub, that you would just recite this out loud, reminding yourself of what we hold on to, what our Christian hope sounds like, looks like this gospel of who Jesus is. So if you would, go ahead and open up your communion. Just open up the top layer. And peel back the next layer so they're both ready to go because we're going to recite the creed and then we're going to take the bread and then we're going to take the juice. Then I'm going to pray and then we'll be dismissed. So go ahead and get it ready. Let's go ahead and put the creed up on the screens. And let's begin to read together. Let's read it out loud. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. 
on the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the father he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end we believe in the holy spirit the lord the giver of life who proceeds from the father and the son with the father and the son he is worshiped and glorified he is spoken through the prophets we believe in one holy global and apostolic church we believe in the forgiveness of sins proclaimed in water baptism we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come amen now let's take the bread Now the juice. Father, I pray. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, over my friends and family and brothers and sisters, over the people of God. I pray that they would stand firm. That we would let nothing move us that we would always give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord because we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. So thanks be to God who always gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit we pray. And all the people of God said, Amen. Hey, friends and family, I hope today's message was life-giving for you. I want to ask you to take a next step and go ahead and click the subscribe button so you never miss another chance to have an encounter with God. And while you're at it, take another step and share it with a friend. Maybe post it on your social network or text a coworker the link. And when you do that, you are partnering and get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in them. Hey, if Faith Church has made an impact in your life, if these messages are helping you gain traction in your faith, would you consider partnering with us financially? When you do that, it helps us widen our reach so that more people can have an encounter with the real Jesus. You can find information and ways to give on our central hub, faithchurchks.org. If you're if you live in the Southeast Kansas region, we'd love to see it in person at one of our Sunday services. You can find those times on our hub as well, faithchurchks.org. Hey, remember this, God is for you and we love you.